Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. Welcome to episode 48. Hello. Welcome back, everybody. It's the day after Mother's Day. We're recording this a couple of days before Mother's Day, but uh, yesterday was Mother's Day. I hope we had a great time, Sally. I, I hope, hope we so, had, too. I hope we had the best Mother's Day. Uh, to be honest with you, I haven't even thought about Mother's Day. For, I, I, I bought gifts for my mother-in-law and my mother, but I haven't even thought about it for myself because, like, what is there to do? <laughs> Uh, can I tell you what there is to do? Yes. Nothing. There's to do nothing. And I mean that yes. in the best way. Here's what I asked for. Okay. I was like, I don't want any responsibilities. I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I want to get up in the morning, go for a bike ride. And then oh, is, oh, is it bad? No. Oh, man. Oh, that okay. sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm all sensitive. <laughs> So I want to get up in the morning. I want to go for a bike ride. And then I want to go sit in my bedroom with the door closed. And I want to watch some dumb TV show all day long. Dang, that sounds good. That's what I want. That's a good one, right? Actually, the new um, season of Dead to Me just came out. And that's what I'm going to do on Mother's Day. Thank you, Sally. Perfect. You're welcome. Thank you, Chef. All right, should we get into some quickies? (laughs) Yes, yes. Let's get into some quickies. You go first this week. Ooh, okay. I have a fun one. And it's it's pretty fun, especially because I know you're going to love it so much because you are so into sports. Let me tell you that I have spent the last week watching uh, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, or I guess about the Chicago Bulls. And I'm a sports person now. I'm sports if I know all of their drama. I want to know who hates who, who's mad at who for partying too much last night, who's mad at who, who's on strike, who's playing to stick it to this guy, what teams are huge rivals. I need to know the drama. And oh, if yeah. I can get into yeah. any sport if there's some kind of backstory. That's all yeah. I, need. I think I think you're a sports person now. You just f- had to figure out your angle. Yes, I just needed I didn't realize how much drama was involved. But now <laughs> oh, so much drama. I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to love um, this one. Okay. Okay, so I got my information from the YBF.com and ESPN.com. Okay. And okay, so this is about NFL player Earl Thomas and his wife, Nina Thomas. And I probably don't have to tell you this, but Earl Thomas plays for the Baltimore Ravens, which I'm I'm sure you already knew. Um uh, I did not. Oh, I thought I thought you were into sports now. No. Um, okay. I'm into the Chicago Bulls from nineteen ninety six. Yeah, to nineteen ninety six. Exclusively. So Earl Thomas married his high school sweetheart Nina in 2016, and together they are two gorgeous, very wealthy people. Of they have three beautiful they children. Of course yeah. they do. But Jen, this is a story about how money 
doesn't buy you happiness because apparently on April 13th of this year, Nina and Earl got into an argument about Earl's drinking and Earl ended up leaving their home with his brother, Seth Thomas. And then later, somehow, Nina's like the best detective because she logged into his Snapchat account, found a video of him with a woman, (gasps) looked up, yes, looked up the location and found out that he was at an Airbnb rental. I'm not, it's unclear whether like it's had its one coordinates they or something. Oh, okay. I'm wondering gotcha. if it's like someone that they own and then rent out. Could um, be. Could be. Or maybe could she be. just she IP addressed it. I don't know. Wow. Either way, so she this is the middle of the night. This is like two in the morning. So she calls up two of her friends, and then on the way out, she grabs Earl's nine millimeter beretta. And she headed to his location. I know. So Nina said that her intentions, that she just wanted to scare him. Which uh, you could do without a gun. Your wife showing up to your Airbnb when you're with a woman at 3 a.m. is terrifying. I would say yes. No gun Um, needed. But let's also, let's, you know, let's hold our our judgment on poor Nina. Oh, I don't judge her. (laughs) (laughs) I celebrate her. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) So she gets to the place and apparently she found her husband and his brother naked in yeah. the bed with these other women. I don't know if they were together in the bed or in separate rooms. Ay, ay, ay. But all hell bro- broke loose. Like, so Nina admits that she then pulled the gun, pointed it at Earl's head, and <gasps> said that she had taken the magazine out, thinking that the gun would not fire. But the cops said that Nina didn't know that there was a ground in the chamber. Oh, no. Yeah. And so one of the women who was with Earl and his brother uh, shot cell phone and video of the incident, of course. And you can see that Nina is pointing the gun at Earl's <gasps> head, like less than a foot away. And you can clearly see that Nina's finger was on the trigger and that the safety was disengaged. Oh, my but God. I know. Very scary. But fortunately for Earl and for Nina and for everybody else there, Earl was able to, like, wrestle the gun away from her, which I would kind of hope so since he's a football player and she's this tiny little woman. So one of the women that was there said she claimed that Nina also threatened her and the other woman in the house and that she pointed the gun at them and yelled, I got something for all you hoes. <laughs> <laughs> So then the woman said that one of Nina's friends was carrying a knife. And then when the police arrived at 3.41 a.m., they found Nina chasing Earl around the yard outside, wielding that knife. (gasps) And luckily nobody was injured. It was fine. Nina and her friends were both arrested and they have been let out on bail. But when he heard that the story, so this happened a month ago. And when he heard that the story was going to come out, Apparently TMZ found it and Earl Thomas went on his Instagram and was like, it pisses me off that this got out, but that's the world we live in today. But instead of talking about us, just keep us in y'all's prayers. Stuff like this happens, bro. Stuff like this happens, bro. Stuff like this happens. Keep us in your prayers. And that's why I love sports. This is why I love sports. (laughs) Oh my God. That story is crazy. It's crazy. Oh my God. Nuts. Mine's a different kind of a quickie. (laughs) Well, that's, you know, the yin and the yang, Jen. The yin yin and the yang. yang. Yes. Uh, This quickie is from a travel article for CNN written by Amiko Jazuka. When this person is a Tokyo-based tourism operator, his name's uh, Kazuki Arai. He went from working in an office to working at home. 
during mm-hmm. the pandemic with his long-term girlfriend, and he realized that it was very difficult. <laughs> Very, very difficult to be under the same roof for 24 hours a day. He was wondering how other couples were coping under the lockdown. And on April 3rd, he got his answer when he saw that a hashtag Corona divorce was trending on social media and where people were, you know, expressing their gripes about Uh one another. And so that's how he got the idea that he was going to start advertising hundreds of his empty vacation rentals to stressed out couples. Oh. So he said that he wanted to prevent people from divorcing. The idea behind the vacation, this is a quote from him. The idea behind the vacation rentals is so that married couples can gain some much needed time and space to think about their relationships. Dude, preach. But if I have... (laughs) my own hotel room I'm not thinking about my relationship I'm thinking about Nene Lakes I'm thinking about Ramona Singer thinking thinking about about Lisa Rinna and every other housewife because that's what I'm doing I'm binging housewives I'm not thinking about my relationship but anyway the reason that he got this idea also is because over the last decade Japan has even though that they have sought to create a better work-life balance for employees because of the economic boom in the 70s and the 80s. Male white-collared workers were working crazy, crazy, crazy hours and they weren't spending time with their families. So they're over time, they have really pushed to create a better like work-life balance. But uh-huh. they say that a lot of husbands still spend lots of hours long. You know, I love how this is all husbands. There's just a kind of right? a article CNN. <laughs> but they say that the husbands like to spend long hours at the office, not because their boss is forcing them to, but because they want to avoid their homes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I know plenty of women that do the same. Um, right? So- I mean, we've become stand-up comedians. <laughs> Yeah. I took up a whole other second job. Uh, (laughs) Also, couples are bickering more because according to Alison McClymont, who is a Hong Kong-based psychotherapist, she said that because the coronavirus pandemic has created uncertainty around the future and people feel like things are spinning out of control, we see destruction all around us. So we start to mirror that in our homes. So people become more snappy, dismissive, and aggressive. Does that make sense? So it's like, yeah. And I was like, dude, that totally makes sense. Like everything's fucked. So you're like, everything's fucked. So fuck you. Yeah. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, um, and because we can't physically be away from someone, we create it in a cognitive way is what she says. Is that Oh, so you're like pushing away from the people around you because you're like, I just need to be alone. It's easier to be in a fight with your significant other because then you could just go in the other room and be pissed off and at least be alone for a minute, you know? Right. So – because of this, this company is trying to offer people a reprieve. The company offers 500 fully furnished rooms in hotels and inns across Japan. And guests can stay anywhere from one day to six months. Doesn't that sound lovely? Um, but a unit <laughs> costs just over 4,000 yen, which is the equivalent to $37 per day. Even though this sounds amazing and they've received over 140 inquiries, overwhelmingly from women – in their uh-huh. 30s to 40s. It's all women that are like, yeah, sounds great, husband. You 
you want a distance, I'll give it to you. Um, so, <laughs> I'm going uh, so, to the spa. But only 37 people out of all of those inquiries have opted to rent a room. So, oh, which I'm surprised. Yeah. So that's that's my quickie. You guys tell I us, would, what would you do? What would you do? I've been thinking about getting one of those tiny house sheds. A she shed? No, I don't even care if it's a she shed. Just a separate space. Yeah. <laughs> just another building. <laughs> Just a just box. A, I just want just a cardboard a box, to go to. box to sit in outside. That's all I yeah. want. <laughs> Same. Love it. Oh man. So that's my quickie. It's not. It's, it. it's no your quickie. It's no your <laughs> well, quickie. What is? <laughs> <laughs> but that's my quickie. That's great. Hey Jen. Hey Sally. Are you ready for a crazy story? Yes, please. Okay, so I got my information from Wikipedia, from Murderpedia, yeah. from a writer named Troy Taylor Hell on the yeah, website prairieghosts.com, and from the book The Double Indemnity Murder by Landis McKellar. Ooh. Okay. I'm intrigued. Okay, so I'm going way back for this one. Uh, okay. All the way back to the Roaring Twenties. This is a story of Ruth and Albert Snyder and Judd Gray. Okay. So Okay, so Ruth and Albert Snyder got married in 1915, and they lived in Long Island City in Queens. I know um, where that is. Me too. That's right by where I used to live. And their marriage was doomed from the beginning. Albert, he was the editor of a magazine called Motorboating Magazine. <laughs> but it was really about motorboats. <laughs> it was about motorboats. But oh man, it just made me laugh. So it was like what made me pick this story pretty much. Okay, so he was totally hung up on his former fiance, whose name was Jesse Gouchard. And he actually insisted on hanging a picture of Jesse on the wall of their first home. And he named his boat after her. And he told Ruth that Jesse was the finest woman I've ever met. I found conflicting information. So Wait, it's not I'm clear. sorry. So who's he's married to Ruth, but he's, he's in married love with Jesse? To, Ruth is his wife. Jesse was his fiance. Before he married Ruth. And it's, it's oh, unclear. So I found, okay, okay, okay. yeah, so I found different information. So one article I read said that Jesse had been dead for 10 years. And then another article I read said that Jesse and Albert were still carrying on an affair during his marriage. So I don't know whether Jesse was still around or not, but either way, he was hung up on Jesse. Gotcha. Ruth was not having it. Okay. Right. Okay. So Ruth and Albert had a daughter a couple years after they got married. Their daughter's name is Lorraine, but it didn't do anything to heal their bond. So Ruth began having affairs of her own. And according to one article, she would use little Lorraine to cover them up. And Ruth figured correctly, as it turned out, that hotel staff wouldn't dream that any mother would take her young daughter to have an illicit affair. And so Ruth would send Lorraine to sit in the lobbies of these hotels and read magazines while she went to the hotel. Oh, and, man. Yeah, with her whatever lover she was with. So in 1925, Ruth met a corset salesman. Just randomly, she was at lunch in New York City, and she met this guy uh, who was at a table next to them, and his name was Judd Gray. And Ruth was 32. She was this tall blonde. Everybody said she had this super imposing personality. And that Judd just sounds was, like she's annoying. 
<laughs> Ruth was like a real bitch. <laughs> what I what a weird. Imagine if someone told you that you had an imposing personality. <laughs> I know. I'd be like, oh, mine. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then they said that Judd was 34. He was short. And then in one article, they described him as instantly forgettable. So. <laughs> oh my god, whoever wrote these I love articles from like the 1920s because they're such bitches. Oh, I know. It's I like know. it's great. Yeah, With a face like, only a mother could love. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Whatever their differences were, they were attracted to one another and they began a pretty hot and heavy affair. And so at this point, Lorraine was old enough to be in school and Albert was off editing motorboating. And so Judd and Ruth would meet at Ruth's house during the day. And like, okay, I don't want to like spoil the story, but there's going to be a murder somewhere in here. I figured. But I want to tell you, I figured, I know. So the most disturbing detail that I found in the whole thing was that Judd and Ruth often used baby talk with each uh. other in which Ruth was called Momsy and Judd was Bud or Loverboy. Oh. Uh. I know. Well. Momsy. Momsy, give it to me. Bud. Momsie. Do you remember from the Cosby <laughs> show where Rudy yeah. would call her? Bud. Her name Bud. <laughs> So Ruth decided she was done with Albert, and of course she began, as you would, instead of deciding to get divorced, she decided to plot his death. So, but first she did what, Jen? Poisoned him. Took out a life insurance policy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where was my head? Where was your head? She had to get the life insurance first. Right. So actually, she first, she persuaded Albert to purchase insurance, but then with the assistance of this insurance agent, he signed a life insurance policy that paid extra if an unexpected act of violence killed him. And this is what is called a double indemnity clause. So if he died of just normal circumstances, she would get $48,000. If he was violently killed, then she would get $96,000. Wow. So she got, apparently she forged the uh, Albert's name on that double indemnity policy. Um, But so she got the insurance policy. And so she decided that she was ready to go straight to the murdering. So, but it turns out old Ruth was really bad at murdering people. So two times she disconnected the gas while Albert slept and then she left the house. But both times he woke up and saved himself from asphyxiation. And apparently he never suspected Ruth. Wow. And then another time she closed him in the garage while the automobile's engine was running, but he survived that too. And then, just as you thought, Jen, she started poisoning him. She put a chemical called bichloride of mercury in his whiskey, but Ugh. he survived again. So either she was really bad at it or Albert was like a cat. So Ruth, after all of these failed attempts, apparently over seven times she tried to kill him, she decided that she needed to bring in reinforcements. And of course, she turned to old lover boy, Judd Gray. So forgettable Judd Gray. I already forgot about him. Right? We had forgotten about him the whole time. (laughs) He's so short. Uh, With her imposing personality, she tried to (laughs) 
convince Judd that her husband mistreated her. And so he had to die. And Judd, apparently at the beginning, he objected, but Ruth continued to pester him. They say that she used her like feminine wiles. So I don't know, she would have sex with him. And then be like, hey, remember how we talked about me, you killing my husband? Um, Do it. Do it. And then we can do it. Apparently her persistence was so disturbing to Judd that he started drinking huge amounts of this was during the prohibition. So, but he started drinking a ton and then, but then finally leave her. Yeah. Leave (laughs) her and go away. He he was also married. So there's that he's drinking, she's pastoring. And then finally on Saturday, March 19th, 1927, Judd, couldn't take it anymore. And so he gave in. So they made a plan and Judd spent most of the day of the murder drinking. He traveled by train from New York City to Syracuse and then by bus to Long Island. And then when he arrived in Long Island City, he walked around for about an hour, apparently stopping under streetlights to take long drinks from this flask. And the the article says it, it was almost as if he hoped to be spotted and arrested breaking the law, but nobody paid it any attention to him. (laughs) I'm just over here trying to murder someone in case you want to stop me. (laughs) If anybody wants to stop this forgettable man, Uh, but nobody did. Oh my God. So he went to the Snyder house and he came in through the back door, which Ruth had left unlocked. The family was away at a party and Judd went and hid in a spare room where Ruth had left a window weight, rubber gloves, and chloroform. And that was what he was to use. So the Snyders returned home from the party around 2 a.m., which I'm like, dang. Party people. So Ruth. Apparently, this is all from one article. I mean, it's, it, you know, because of the time, they're very flowery with their language and sometimes not so, like, careful with the facts. So this is what, according to one article, they got home. Ruth went to the door of the guest room and was like, are you there, bud, dear? And he said, yes, mumsy. And then, <laughs> and then after Albert fell asleep, she came back to the spare room. She was wearing only a slip, and the two had sex with her husband asleep just down the hallway. What? And then, and then it says after an hour, which I'm like, dang, okay. Judd got the window weight, and Ruth led him to the master bedroom where Albert Snyder slept with blankets up over his head. And the two of them stood on opposite sides of the bed. Judd was like very tentative, but he raised the weight and brought it down onto Albert's head. But it was such a weak blow that it just kind of barely hit him. And Albert woke up and was just like, what the fuck? And he tried to get to Judd and Judd was terrified. And he let out, it says he let out a whining scream. (laughs) Mumsy, mumsy, for God's sake, help. Oh my God. Oh my god, this poor guy, the way that they're depicting him. He's just a little bitch. He's such a bitch. (laughs) So Ruth then grabbed the weight from Judd's hands and crashed it down on Albert's head until he was unconscious. I know. And then she chloroformed him and strangled him with a picture wire. You know, you could have chloroformed him first, you guys. That would have been... I mean, but they're also murdering him, so I guess I just don't... it's not like they're like you know what would be nicest to poor albert well Um, not only nicest not that i would ever do this but i'm just saying it wouldn't only be the (laughs) nice thing to do it's the logical thing to do 
Because then he couldn't Um, fight you back, idiots. Dummies. After they murdered Albert, they went downstairs, they had cocktails, and then talked about the rest of their plan. They faked a robbery by knocking over some chairs, and then Judd tied Ruth's hands and feet, and then Judd left. Minutes after Judd left, Ruth began banging on Lorraine's door, and the child ran out, and she saw her mother was gagged and had these ties around her hands, and so she removed the gag. Ruth told Lorraine to go to get help, and Lorraine ran to their next-door neighbor's house where the police were called. Oh, this poor girl. I know. So when the police got there, they immediately knew that something was up. They knew there was no robbery because all of the items that Ruth said had been taken by this mysterious burglar slash murderer were found hidden under her mattress. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And they also, in the... In the search of the house, they also found a bloody pillowcase, uh, as well as the blood-stained weight. They found a $200 check in Ruth's desk that was made out to Judd Gray and a tie clip with his initials on it on the bedroom floor. They found his name along with 28 other men in Ruth's address book, which I just think is a way of being like, look at this slut. Yeah. Um, and then they found, of course, the life insurance in a safe deposit box registered in her maiden name. And when Judd left the scene of the crime, he walked to a bus stop, ran into a policeman and asked the policeman how long it would be before the next bus came. It was too long to wait. And so he ended up taking a taxi to Manhattan. And the cabbie remembered Judd very well because he'd only given him a very small tip. Damon Runyon, who was a big-time newspaper writer, later wrote that Ruth and Judd were inept idiots and called the whole mess the dumbbell murder because it was so dumb. This was a quote. (laughs) (laughs) So this became known as the dumbbell murder. Oh, Um, my gosh. So police brought in Ruth and Judd, and they found Judd in upstate in Syracuse, and he claimed he had been there all night, but eventually it turned out a friend of his had created an alibi setting up a hotel room or in his name. And then when they brought him in, the police told Ruth that Judd had already confessed to everything. And so Ruth was like, oh, wait, he did? And then so she confessed too. And she, but she said it was completely... His Judd's idea. Fault. Yes, his his fault. And then, so then they go back to Judd and they're like, well, Ruth confessed. And then Judd confesses, but he actually tells the truth. He says, Ruth had hypnotized him with drink, veiled threats, and intensive love. All right. Yeah. So he claimed that Ruth had tied the wire around Albert's throat. But for on Ruth's part, she said all she knew was that Judd went into the bedroom and came out again saying, I guess that's it. And she had no idea that Albert was dead. So by the time the case went to trial, these two former lovers were at each other's throat and they were each blaming the other one for murdering Albert. And the trial- That's how it always happens, you guys. Yes. If you ever think you want to murder somebody with someone you love, they're going to turn on you <laughs> in a minute. So both of them, apparently the trial became this like huge media frenzy. It was like the trial of the century. Celebrities attended, were attending the trial. All of these famous writers and movie directors were coming. And both Ruth and Judd had separate attorneys and they were pointing the finger at each other, but the jury didn't buy it. So it turned out it took them only 98 minutes before they came back with a verdict of guilty. And both of them were stunned when they learned that they were being sentenced for their crime to death. 
Oh, wow. So while in Sing Sing prison, they each actually wrote their own life story. And Ruth's story actually brought such notoriety to her that she got offers of marriage from nearly 200 men. All you have to be (laughs) is like generally good looking in prison. And there are hundreds of people that want to marry you. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, don't take that as... Like we're not recommending it? Yeah. That's not a recommendation. I'm just... (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying in general, this is a trend I've noticed. I've noticed. I've noticed this. Uh, <laughs> so ask yourself, before you commit a crime, am I generally good looking? <laughs> Will I get proposed to in prison? <laughs> and if not, is this maybe worth just don't it? do it. Yeah. <laughs> They were actually this. It's not like today when people sit on death row for years and years and years and never nothing ever happens. They were actually very quickly put to death. And Judd Gray was executed first on January 12th, 1928. And apparently he sat smiling in his cell when the warden came for him. And he said he had nothing to fear. He was ready to go because that morning he had received a letter from his wife forgiving him. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then Ruth, just minutes after Judd was executed, she was executed. Reporters said that as she was being led to the electric chair, she said that God had forgiven her and she hoped that the world would too. Albert and Ruth's family fought over the custody of their daughter, Lorraine, and she was eventually placed with Ruth's mother. And during her time on death row, Ruth Snyder wrote a sealed letter to be given to her daughter when she was old enough to understand And one year after her mother's execution, Lorraine, who I think was about 12 or 13 at the time, was apparently aware that both of her parents were dead, but she didn't know the manner of either of their deaths. Oh, God. I know. So that's my crazy story. I should have ended it at a different place. That poor girl. Um, I know. No, I mean, there's no real good way to end that. (laughs) But that is a crazy story. (laughs) Yes, bud. (laughs) Oh, man. That is a good story, though. Cool. What you got? Are you ready for a love story to bring it on home? Oh, I'm ready, Jen. I am so ready. Man, this story is really amazing. I hope I do it justice. I got this from two New York Times articles, one written by Rod Nordland. Uh, Mm -hmm. Remember that name because it's important. Another written by Musib Michelle. And then interview for UpfrontScholastic.com of Rod Nordland, the person who wrote the New York Times article. And there's a book that he actually wrote, Rod Nordland, The Lovers, Afghanistan's Romeo and Juliet, the true story of how they defied their families and escaped an honor killing. Ooh. Yeah. It's pretty nuts. And it was pretty recent. Zakaya and Muhammad Ali, no relation to the boxer. Different Muhammad Ali. In Afghanistan, apparently most people don't have last names, which I did not know that until I read this. I did not uh, know that either. Did you know? Zakaya and Muhammad Ali were friends when they were children because they worked in adjacent fields in the village of Kaim Kalak, which is near the provincial capital of Afghanistan. When they were little kids, they would go to the desert and they would take their animals for foraging and they would spend their days in the huts around other animals and they would talk to each other. They had a super close friendship 
but unfortunately it was cut off abruptly when she was around 12 years old because it says that once girls pass puberty, they have to remain covered and they can't go out in public unless they're in the company of close male relatives. Uh Um, And another thing that made matters very complicated was that Muhammad Ali is Hazara, which is mostly uh, Shia Muslims. Zakia is Tajik, which is a Sunni ethnic group. They were not of the same religious sect. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. So um, even though that they couldn't be around each other, Muhammad Ali would still see Zakia in the fields and catch her. And he said he would catch her eye under her headscarf. And I have to say, when you guys see pictures of the both of them, they both have the most gorgeous eyes. They're both like this super, super deep hazel, almost like they were like made for each other. Yeah. Their eyes. It's really amazing. And he said that he, um, that in secret, he would play his flute when no one was around and he would recite bits of Persian love poems that he'd memorize, even though he couldn't read and neither could she. And so um, he found ways to woo her, even though they couldn't really be around each other. It was from a distance. And he actually found a young girl to be an intermediary and he gave her a cell phone to take to Zakaya. And so Zakaya. I hid the phone so that no one could find it. And for four years, they spoke to each other about once a week or so through the yeah. cell phone. Whenever she, How romantic. She, I know. So she was one of 10 children. And so it was really hard for her to find privacy. But when she, whenever she could, she would call him, let it ring once, and then he would call her back. And he actually gave her a ringtone that was from a verse of a popular Afghan song that uh-huh. is uh, the story of Yusuf and Zuleika. Details differ across the Islamic world and the Christian version of the story. But um, uh-huh. Zuleika was a married woman who tries unsuccessfully to tempt Yusuf into adultery. And then he is thrown into prison. And Zuleika waits 36 years for him to be free. But by the time he gets out, she's it says homely, old, and blind, but her love is not flagged. She still loves him. And Yusuf marries her. And when he does, it miraculously turns her into a young beauty again. So when he f- finished telling Zakaya that story, she replied to him that she would wait for him for 50 years. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Jen. So they very badly wanted to be together and they tried to do it through their parents' permission. Um, he two times sent messages to her father asking permission, but they were like, no way. And he even offered his family's part of his family's fields as a bride price. And Zakaya went to his house and pleading his family to take her in and let him marry him. But they sent her back because they were like, first of all, you know, they're from different religious sects. And also, if your parents aren't supporting this, then like we will not be disgraced, sort of. Right. And like so, we're not going to go behind your parents' wishes. Like we're not yes. going to go against your parents' wishes. His older brother and father beat him so badly that he was hospitalized. Oh um, so much that he still has a bruise on his left cheekbone. And – um but and he said that he didn't want them to be disgraced like you know he didn't want his family to, to be disgraced but when they sent her back to her family it was all out in the open it wasn't a, a secret because when they sent her back she too was badly beaten <gasps> by her family when they and they also found her cell phone and confiscated confiscated it and so she fled to Muhammad 
Ali's house for a third time. And when she he she did, he was like, I knew that she had no place to go because she can't be at her house. She can't be with my family. So he brought her to the women's ministry to look out for her. So he took her to Bamiyan branch of the ministry. While she was there, they were both chased by Zakaya's family who um, they rummaged through the building trying to find them. And police were able to subdue the male relatives. But apparently Muhammad Ali had to hide in a closet from Zakaya's angry mother. Once everything was controlled, her parents were claiming that she was actually legally engaged to someone else, which is her cousin and aunt's son. And there's a woman who was the head of the Bamiyan women's ministry. Her name is Fatima Kazimi. She was supporting Zakaya, of course. And she said that the uh-huh. versions of what her parents were saying changed from day to day. She would, They would say, oh, she's engaged. Oh, she's already married. You know, they were just trying to do whatever they could to just get right, her to get the support. Yeah. She was given refuge in the shelter, but they still had to go to court to determine if she was legally engaged or not. They apparently presented a document saying that she had her thumbprint on something showing that she was engaged. But Zakaya said, I never put my thumbprint on anything saying that I was engaged. Fatima Kazimi was able to visit Takaya with police and government officials present, and they told her that she was free to do as she chose and that they would support her. And Zakaya asked to be kept away from her family, saying that she has no idea what she signed with her thumbprint and that she mm-hmm. doesn't trust her family at all. Yeah. And so when Mrs. Kazimi and policemen escorted her out of the court, her family went insane. She says, my father and mother were pulling my clothes and ripping them off me. Um, Her mother screamed at her, calling her a whore over and over, which is the worst thing that you can say to an Afghan woman. Zakaya's brother-in-law tried to beat her and they threatened to kill Muhammad Ali as well. Zakaya said, they said, if I go marry him, that they will not let us live. But if I go home, I know my mother and father would not let me live either. So now Zakaya is in the shell. Shelter mm-hmm. in the women's ministry. But February of that year, the chief judge Atola Tompkin issued an order suspending Ms. Kazimi and other women ministry officials from their jobs for intervening on Zakaya's behalf. And they also insisted that the document with Zakaya's thumbprint was valid and that she should return to her family. So she knew that she she had to flee because yeah. she knew that if she went home, that She were going to kill her. Yeah. She knew that she would be the victim of an honor killing, which in an honor killing, if you don't know what that is, when an Afghan girl has done something culturally forbidden, it's considered acceptable, even expected for male relatives to kill her to wipe the shame brought to the family, which is horrible. She was determined to escape the ministry and elope with Muhammad Ali. So, can I um, ask you something? Yes. Are we going Am I to jumping happy town? all over the place? No. We will go to oh, we will go to Happy Town. Yeah. Okay. I'm just because this is like giving me a lot of like anxiety. <clears throat> and I'm feeling yeah. very I'm very caught up in this story. It's a great story. But I just need to know that there's gonna be a happy ending. <laughs> There will be. There will be. Okay. Okay. Keep going. Okay. Okay. So while she was in the ministry on the other side of Bamiyan Valley, Muhammad Ali was waiting. He had secretly left her a cell phone at the women's shelter when he visited her so that she could contact him. So he waited for her call. He taught her to recognize the numbers. So 
On the night that they decided that she she was going to break free, she dragged several mattresses across the courtyard to the back wall. She and she doubled them over and piled them up to make a ledge um, high enough for her to climb over this eight foot wall. Uh-huh. And then once she was over the wall, she ran and she the only shoes she had were high heels, apparently. She ran. Um, same, same. As I know. <laughs> Me too. I only have high heels. <laughs> Me too. So she ran as fast as she could to Ali because he was waiting for her call. And when he did, he had a friend who owned an old Toyota Corolla and, and agreed to help them elope by picking up Sakai, who was about 20 minutes away. And then he drove them into the mountains and then they were together alone for the first time ever. What if they were like, I don't, I don't really like you. (laughs) I'm just not feeling like there's like no there there. It's like no spark. (laughs) This wasn't worth that. No, they were uh, very much in love. And they paid what's called, uh, I think it's pronounced a mullah or mullah, M-U-L-L-A-A, which is an Islamic religious leader to marry them. But getting married didn't solve their problems. Unfortunately, it just created new ones because now they can be arrested because they're saying that she is legally engaged to somebody else and now she's married to another person. And so now the relationship is even more forbidden. Mm -hmm. So they escaped into the high mountains of Afghanistan where they hid out for as long as they could. By eloping, she was not only defying her father's wishes, but she was also stealing what was rightfully her father's, which is herself. You know what I mean? She belongs to him. So the police are looking for him and her family is incensed and freaking out and ready to kill the both of them, literally. The the reporter who I had talked about earlier, Rod Nordland, who had written the articles when they were in court uh-huh. and when they were trying to be together, had heard that she had made an escape and that they were on the run. And she he knew that they had no car, no money, no prospects, but the only thing they had was their connection to this reporter. And he said that he felt a sense of responsibility. He said, I didn't want their story to end like this and I felt responsible. And quite possibly my arrival had made it even easier for the police to trace them since foreigners were so rarely seen in that area, I decided to help them escape. So he gave Muhammad Ali $1,000 and put the couple in his car. And Mm -hmm. the police were just hours behind them, but they were able to get away. And in the months following, they bounced around from country to country trying to find refuge. They ended up taking refuge in the um, capital of Kabul because there's 5 million people there. So they were hoping that they wouldn't be seen in this Mm -hmm. big big, crazy, busy town. Unfortunately, that's where Zakaya's family found Muhammad Ali. And then things took a turn for the worse. He was put in jail. He was charged with kidnapping his own wife. And Zakaya still feared for her life at the hands of her own father and brothers. But she was returned to the women's shelter for her own, own, own safety. But now... Because of all of the publicity and of all of these New York Times articles, she had become a fixture on Afghan TV and she had become a hero to every young Afghan woman who dreams of marrying someone for love instead of somebody chosen by her family. So when um, the couple was taken into custody, young Afghans were so outraged that the authorities actually let them go. Really? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. 
And so now they were let go, but they still had to flee for their survival. And at this point, Zakaya actually became pregnant because of all the stories in the New York Times. It generated a bunch of public sympathy and people created a worldwide fund that Uh people donated to just to help them. In October of 2014, they used that money to buy tickets to neighboring Tajikistan. And the plan was for them to apply for a refuge refuge status and apply for asylum in a Western country. But things went wrong. I know it's a roller coaster. (laughs) Jen, stop it. I'm sorry. So, but things went wrong almost immediately. They were picked up by corrupt secret police who stole everything from them, beat them, and then deported (gasps) them back to Afghanistan. God, these poor kids. Isn't that horrible? So um, she has a baby or she's pregnant? So, yeah. So apparently because she was humiliated by the fiasco, they went back to Bamiyan and they went to um, Mahavan Ali's father's house where in December of 2014, she gave birth to their daughter, Rukia. In the following year, hundreds of Afghans migrated to Europe. They were risking their lives to escape violence in their homeland. And while they could have migrated with them, they were worried about the safety of their child, but they knew that they had to leave there, but they were still afraid to leave the house because they were still fearing attacks by her family members. They knew that they had to flee Afghanistan. No nation stepped forward to offer their asylum until a few years ago when an anonymous U.S government official intervened behind the scenes. Apparently he had read this book called The Lovers and was moved by their plight. And then they were told that they had permission to come to the United States. And in May of 2016, they moved first to New York City, which that's the place to be. So they moved to New York City (laughs) and today they live in Connecticut where they're learning English and waiting for their asylum across to be approved. But they say that they hope to one day return to Afghanistan when it's safe for women and for young people to be in love. Zakaya says, I want our daughter to grow up and choose her own husband. Above all, I want her to be educated. What a crazy, beautiful story, Jen. That was great. See, I told you it would eventually get there. So should we do something dumb, something we love? Let's do it. Let's do Let's it, bring man. it on home. Let's bring it on home. Okay. So uh, my something dumb is just that it's Mother's Day coming up. So I'm just feeling a lot of a lot of emotions about my mom not being around. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, it's, you know, everybody says like, oh, it's hard the first Mother's Day. And, and yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that, that's why I'm feeling so out of sorts. I should have known that when I off the top was like, how's your roller say? I, I'm so sorry. I should have. Oh, no. Stop. No. Stop. <laughs> no, no I mean, because it is kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because I'm a mom yeah. and this year, I think more than anything, I'm like grateful for my family and how much they mean to me. And and then there's, you know, this other side of it. So it's just, uh, I think that's the dumb and love of it. It's just like, it's both and, you know, it's both yeah. heartbreaking and beautiful. And I want to, I want to be celebrated. I want to celebrate my mom. Just, I also just feel grateful for like the other mothers in my life that have kind of stepped up like Ben's mom has just been so amazing and supportive and my mom's best friend Barbara has really stepped in as like another grandma and and my stepmom is just you know 
everybody is like stepping in to kind of fill this void and it's really beautiful. So that's what's dumb and that's what I love. What do you have? Well, we can still celebrate your mother for Mother's Day. Yeah. And celebrate you. I celebrate both of you. How about that? Thank you. I celebrate you and your mom. You're amazing. And I hope that you have the most wonderful Mother's Day. I hope you have a wonderful Mother's Day too because you deserve it and you're wonderful. No. (laughs) Oh, no. Jerk off motion. Jerk off motion. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ma'am. I guess if I got to do something dumb and something I love, I'm going to say something dumb is I feel bad that you – or, or having a hard time this Mother's Day because I love you so much and I oh. don't ever want you to be in pain. Thank you. My something I love is this really great new TV show. <laughs> <laughs> what, housewife? <laughs> no, it's not a new TV show. It's actually, but the fourth season just came out. Um, it's called Workin' Moms. And oh, yeah. I have to tell you, like, I saw this, like, I would see it on Netflix and I Dared away from it just because sometimes moms don't want all that mom stuff shoved down your throat. Like, we get it. We're moms. Okay. We get it. That's not all we are. And then there's a comedian. Her name's uh, Rachel Epstein. And um, she's, like, young and cool. She asked me if I had watched it one day. And I was like, no, I get it. It's moms. And then she's like, no, it's, re- it's actually really funny. And I was like, oh, well, if you think it's funny. Right. And it's like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a whirl. And it's so good, you guys. It's so well written. It's so funny. Um, So yeah, I guess those are our things that we love and that are dumb. Is that our show? That's our show. That's our show. That's we our did show. It. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. You know, Find us on all the places. Find us on uh, on Patreon. We're doing fun stuff on Patreon. We'd love for you to join us over there if you have some extra cash and want some extra content. Otherwise, you can hit us up on Instagram. We do fun stuff there. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all at Dumb Love Podcast. That's also our website, Dumb Love Podcast. Um, or you can send us an email at dumblovepod at gmail.com. Yeah, do all those things. And also... I can't wait till I can tell you guys to get out there again. But for (laughs) now, stay inside and do something dumb for love.